We're starting, though, with an exclusive story, and it has to do with what was one of the worst mass murders in Canada's history. We now know a little bit about Miles Sanderson, the man who murdered 11 people, including his brother, and went on that killing spree in September. Well, Ashley Stewart, who is a global news journalist, is joining us now because she has an exclusive story with one of the survivors. Ashley, thank you so much for being with us today. No worries. Thanks for having me. I know we've talked to you in the past as well when you uh, have spoken with uh, the woman who uh, has children with and spent a lot of time, uh, spent a lot of her life with Miles Sanderson. And uh, you've now released another story about this and what uh, a brutal and oftentimes heartbreaking history. Sorry, you just cut out there quite a bit. I'm reading that. Oh, yes. Sorry. Yeah. Um, just saying that we, we talked to you before about Vanessa Burns and her history with Miles Sanderson. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you've learned when she sat down and spoke with you? Yes. Yeah, so actually, um, we've spoken before uh, about a similar story, which actually to do with Sky Sanderson, who was with Damien. This story now deals with uh, Vanessa Burns, who was with Miles. Um, I mean, they both have had quite a similar... Uh, first time Vanessa was kind of speaking openly about the 15 years she spent with um, Miles, about the fact that she was... I mean, she was physically and emotionally abused for that whole 15 years that they were together. They shared five children. The, the, the children were often scared of their father. Um and she she was with him right up until the weekend of the murders. So she speaks a lot about the fact that she was one of the last people to spend time with Miles, and that the fact and she was helping him sell cocaine, um, James Smith Cremation that last weekend. She's um, incredibly brave. She's often pretty and kind of a window into her relationship. And uh, sorry, Ashley, we're just having problems. I'm not sure uh, what the problem with the phone line is, but we're having a bit of difficulty hearing you as well. Uh, we'll try to continue on, but we may need to, to reestablish a connection with you. Uh, can you tell us a little bit, uh, Vanessa speaking out, and I know she spoke exclusively to you, uh, and wanting to put the story out. It must have been very difficult for her as well, though, to put this story out there. Such a very raw story about the the abuse that she has suffered and what her life has been like. Yeah, I think she was, she's obviously been very worried about how people would perceive her um, after this story came out. But I think the fact of the matter is there were so many rumors going around in the weeks before this, in the weeks after the murders, about whether she was involved or about whether she's a drug dealer, that she kind of came to the conclusion that it was time to kind of take back her power. And she doesn't want to be a victim anymore. She wants to speak out in, in the hopes that it will help other victims of domestic violence get out of abusive relationships as well. And she's, I mean, I think she kind of sees a higher purpose in all this rather than worry about how it's going to affect her. Uh, it, reading this as well, it also seems that even though uh, she did endure this abuse and, and had a very difficult life, especially with him, uh, did you get the impression, or I don't know if she would use this word, though, that she was lucky to have survived this? Yeah, it was very interesting to me because I asked her point blank to begin with if she thought that he was going to kill her throughout their entire relationship together. And she, she said very quickly no because he she always thought he was going to change or he promised he was going to change. 
But that very quickly changed in that last weekend when he really did. He he, he did attack her very violently. He tried to run her over with, with a car. She was left with two black eyes and bumps all over her forehead and, and under her chin where she says that he tried to kick her kick her in the face and choke her and things like that. So that last weekend, it, it very much did seem that she was his first, he, she could have been his first victim. And what does this say as well about uh, th- that this ha- was happening for such a long time and, and this was something that, that she endured for such a long time? Does she feel like she was uh, kind of abandoned by, by others in the family or by the system that this was able to go on for so long? It's a very interesting point because the fact of the matter is that he was only arrested seven times for abusing her when she thinks that it could have been as many as a hundred times. I asked her if she thought that she that if she was abandoned by, by the justice system, but she was the one that said she believed him each and every time he said he was going to change. And also she was the one that did not uh, press charges or withdrew charges quite often. I mean, she's kept a blank victim impact statement for all these years and she kind of um, gave it to me very resigned just saying I I just I wanted my family to be be together I I believed him when he said he was going to change I was one that didn't that didn't press those charges hard enough so I think she she's not looking for blame here as such she's more kind of just hoping she can that her story can help someone else basically. Right, because even looking at how this must have been as well leading up to when the, the murders took place, and this has come out before as well, that, that here's somebody that was actually wanted on a Canada-wide warrant and everybody knew where he was and where he was living. Exactly, and I mean, the fact of the matter is, and something that she's given us more clarity on is that for those two weeks before the murders, she was helping Miles drive to James Smith Cremation and back to Saskatoon. They were making that trip regularly and they were selling cocaine to um, to James Smith members. So he was not in hiding. He was definitely, if so, hiding in plain sight. I mean, he was back and forth across the countryside that whole time selling drugs. It's not like he was laying low. So it, it, it does speak to a, a larger issue of, of why this person was allowed to just get on with life and, and live it like he will, like he was. And, and you touch on this in the story as well. Not only uh, her, as far as the the recipient of his attacks, and like you said, he had been arrested several times. Uh, but she also talked to you about the fact that he almost murdered her parents. That he had been arrested for for other uh, types of domestic assaults and uh, other uh, very very horrific crimes. Exactly. He he tried to kill her parents once before in 2015 when it was just after Vanessa had moved out of out of home again and he took that out on the whole family. I mean, her dad had never had never liked Miles. He'd always tried to protect his daughter. She obviously didn't listen and she tried to go to a shelter after that happened after he did um try to stab her parents to death. Luckily, she they survived. But she went to a shelter after that, and all it did was was make her feel lonely. So she went straight back to the man who was accused of of, kill, of almost killing her parents. And the fact of the matter is that seven years later, he went back and tried to finish the job. I mean, Earl Vanessa's father was killed in the murders, and Joyce very nearly was. I mean, there was a long stretch of time there where they thought that she was not going to survive, and she only got out of hospital after 39 days. She's back there now. So it just... 
it's a very, very complicated situation and it just goes to show that we need to have better supports in place to help these, these, these women. And is that you mentioned as well that one of the reasons that she spoke to you and put this story out there was to to help people to let other women know. But it it does also seem like um, that that is very selfless of her to do that. But it does also show such gaps in the justice system that, like you said, this person was just living his life in plain sight, but wanted for some pretty serious crimes. Exactly. And yeah, she does. She does want to help. And I do think she's been she's been quite um, uh, restrained and not throwing blame around when I do think she has. Um, I mean, she has the kind of ability to do that. She, she has been failed in many ways. And I think there are many things that we need to look at here. Obviously, the inquiry is not going to take place until next July at the very, very earliest which is a long time for people to wait for closure and answers and details of what happened. So we're kind of relying on people like Vanessa and like Sky, who I spoke to about a month ago, to come forward and, and, and tell their stories so we know what happened and the people that are involved can find out as well because they still have no idea. I mean, a lot of the details are still incredibly murky. So it's, it's going to be a really long process for this. All right. Ashley Stewart, thank you once again for joining us and for talking more about your story and for putting this story out there. Thank you. No, thank you. Thanks for being with us on this Tuesday afternoon. Well, the Vancouver Humane Society says it is applauding the province of BC and the move to address rodenticide poisoning of wildlife and other pets, the animals it is not targeted to. Uh, Raising concerns, though, that there are some gaps when it comes to animals that are at risk of coming across, of ingesting these types of poisons. Well, joining us to talk more about this is Emily Pickett, the Vancouver Humane Society's campaign director. Emily, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, uh, so the the society says it's applauding the changes, uh, there are still some gaps. So what are the rules or what are the new regulations when it comes to using these poisons, when it comes to, to getting rid of rodents? Yeah, so under the new rules, the the sale and the use of a particular category of rodenticides known as second-generation anticoagulant rodenticides, they're some of the most potent um, poisons on the market. They will be prohibited for all members of the public as well as in many commercial and industrial operations. But that said, there are exemptions that will allow these um, products to still be used in, in essential services. So, there's, you know, we see this as an important step in the right direction, but we think that it's going to be the last step. And when you say the products can still be used in essential situations, what type of situations would that be? Yeah, so the government has shared a list of um, exempt services, and they're pretty widespread. So it could be things from health services, um, public safety services, critical infrastructure, uh, things like food supply and agricultural production, um, sanitation. Um, there's, so there's kind of a list of, of different categories that the government has deemed to be essential services um, that they, these products would continue being allowed to be used under. And is it your opinion then, or, or do you think, are there other things that could be used where these products are still being allowed? Or is it is the argument being made that they're still allowed in these scenarios because there isn't an alternative? 
Well, there there are alternatives on the market. I think um, this is what BHS and and other advocates have long been calling for is is a comprehensive ban. We think that um, all of these rodent poisons cause uh, a lot of inhumane suffering and slow and prolonged deaths for the animals that um, encounter them. And they're not they're indiscriminate. They impact so many different species of animals, whether those animals ingest these poisons directly or whether they eat poisoned rodents. Um, the baits are meant to attract animals, so even pets can get into them. So we really think that it's it's really time to move away from rodenticides. We know that they're not a long-term solution. If you think about it, they're really not getting at the root cause of why, you know, people are having a conflict with rodents. There's a lot of different um, alternatives that can be can be done, including prevention. Prevention is really the, the only long-term solution, and there's Important steps we can take, like removing attractants, so things like addressing garbage, compost, uh, food sources that can attract rodents like bird seed, even leaky plumbing can be an attractant. And then doing things like rodent-proofing buildings, um, habitat modification to make the environment around a building much less hospitable for rodents. And when it comes to lethal control, instead of um, rodenticides, there are other, other tools you can use things like high-quality snap traps, captive bolt traps. Um, and ultimately, I think it's important to note that rodenticides are killing off the natural uh, rodent predators, such as owls. So by removing these from the landscape, we're actually um, you know, promoting more natural rodent predation. And in fact, a family of owls can eat more than 1,000 rodents per year. So we think this is just a really another important reason to remove these from the landscape. Are we mainly talking about rats and people uh, kind of not wanting rats? Like you said, you can get rid of the attractants, but we see rats uh, throughout Metro Vancouver. Is that the main mm-hmm. rodent here? Yeah, I think so. I think it's, you know, that's what these these rodent poisons are intended for, but certainly they're having a much wider impact. Um, they cause a slow and painful death on on rodents, but also on on lots of other, um, you know, birds of prey and animals that consume these rodents. So it's it's a, a much larger um, widespread concern. Uh, we heard from uh, one of the um, pest control companies that we talk to often on this program saying, and he was saying that these new restrictions uh, will provide greater restrictions on, on things like farming and where where these types of uh, poisons are used to, to exactly prevent what you were just talking about, the fact that birds, birds of prey that often fall victim to these that aren't the targets are, um, are, are getting poisoned. But but he also talked about there that there are some unregulated businesses or perhaps other businesses that will continue to use these, and it's very difficult to get through to those. Is that what you or your group is seeing as well? Yeah, I mean, it's a major concern. The enforcement piece is is a major reason we also advocated for a comprehensive ban on all rodenticides, not just second generation poisons, because really what we're going to see now is is a partial ban that amounts to kind of a complicated patchwork of rules for different audiences and for different rodenticide products. And that really could make enforcement incredibly difficult. And in fact, that's what we we really saw during the temporary ban period. So prior to the government's decision last week to, to implement these permanent changes, there was a temporary ban in place while they sort of decided what they were going to do in the long term. But we, you know, we've walked through the community. You can see lots of black bait, bo- black bait boxes around. 
We've had reports um, of bait boxes that are mislabeled, that are unlabeled. So it's really hard for the public to know what's in them and follow up on, on reported complaints when people suspected that, um, you know, some of these poisons were being used in contravention of the temporary ban. Those follow-up on those complaints was often inconsistent and slow. So to us, that really suggests that, that there may just not be enough resources allocated to effectively enforce a partial ban. And so a comprehensive ban would be much easier to enforce. I mean, you mentioned the black bait boxes. I was going to ask you that because I think everybody has seen those at some point, whether it's by schools or, or other buildings or, or homes and gardens. Are those, do you, do you make the assumption that if you see one of those black bait boxes for rats, that one of these poisons is being used in that? The black bait boxes, they can contain any number of different products, including snap traps. So it doesn't necessarily indicate that there are poisons in them. But that's part of the problem is that like I said, you know, people report them when they sometimes see a label that suggests that it's a, a, a second generation poison in a location where it's not supposed to be used anymore. They'll hear back that it was just mislabeled. Some are entirely unlabeled. So it's, it's a really um, a difficult thing to, to really fully enforce. And that's, that's part of our major concern. Uh, do you know, are there other jurisdictions that have a full ban or that have gone that direction? Yes, I mean, it's exciting to see that that BC is also really leading the way in terms of BC municipalities. We've had more than 20 uh, BC communities have already begun to take action in recent years by banning redenticides on municipal property. That's where they have that jurisdiction to do so. So, uh, you know, District of North Van, City of North Vancouver, City of Victoria, um, lots of communities have already kind of gone above and beyond and, and are doing that. One of the most recent, um, I believe, is Whistler, which recently adopted a policy uh, to ban first-generation poisons as well as second-generation poisons. So they go above and beyond the, uh, the province's current ban. So we think that it's important, and our hope is really that um, despite you know, a partial ban, that we think um, this is really an opportunity for, for other municipalities and other jurisdictions, institutions to, to really go above and beyond the partial ban as well. All right. So we'll leave it there for today. Emily, thank you so much, though, for joining us and for talking more about this. Thank you. Well, you likely heard in the news, the B.C. government announced yesterday that the hospitality sector, this is the title of the news release, hospitality sector gets boost through expanded hours during World Cup, saying that bars and pubs can temporarily extend their operating hours during the FIFA World Cup 2022, giving those fans some extra time at their venue to take in the game. However, the release also said there will be no change to the hours of liquor sales and service and that bars, pubs, restaurants will be able to stay open but serving non-alcoholic beverages during those extended hours. Well, Mike Farnworth was asked specifically about that to earlier today. Yeah, no, I've heard that uh, they want on the uh, World Cup final, uh, the Men's World Cup final, uh, to be able to do that. And uh, I'm open to looking at that and I look forward to, if they've got ideas on how that could happen, um, I'm willing to consider that. Like, how would that work? Like, like yesterday you seemed to say that it was not possible to adjust the liquor rules. So that, that's why I said I'm open to hearing what they have to say. They've indicated that they want to do it for the, uh, for the day of the World Cup final, uh, which I think is the um, 18th, I think December, it is. Yeah. yeah. And uh, um, so they've asked uh, if we look at that, and I'm 
Like it's, it's, it's possible? Like you can have, well, that's why, like, that's like why I said... Because it'd be 7, what time is it? It's like it's in the morning. That's why, that's why I said I'm willing to look at it. All right, that was an exchange between Mike Farnworth and our Richard Zussman. Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Owen Coomer, Tap House Coquitlam Operations Manager. Owen, thanks so much for coming back on the show. No, no worries. Always a pleasure. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? When you first heard that the hours could be extended, but not for liquor sales... Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a good thing. I, I'm, I'm glad that they're, uh, they're willing to compromise on allowing us to open up, especially considering like the first uh, three games. There's, you know, one's at 11 and then the other one's at eight. Uh, and obviously one's at seven. It can work. It's just, um, it's hard to say because Canada hasn't been in the World Cup since uh, 1986. I'm sure that there's tons of fans that want to support and so on, but uh, you know, just obviously with with labor shortages and just the the high costs with hourly wages and stuff like that, um, obviously we rely you know significantly on on liquor sales to to make it work. Um, but it's still a great great thing to at least allow us to be able to open. Um, not that we'd see a lot of people drinking at that time, <laughs> but it's it's once in a lifetime. So sometimes you know it, it might be a neat thing for people to either stay up late and want to get up and be a part of, you know, the festivities and so on and be like every other kind of country. But, uh, you know, it's it's definitely good for us. I'm happy that they did that. It's just, it would be nice to have a little bit more wiggle room, especially on the liquor sales, like maybe not so much at the 6, 7 o'clock period, but maybe anytime you know, that 8, 9, you know, there's always people wanting Baileys and coffees and Caesars. Right, exactly. And, and making it so it's not only acceptable in airports that you could do it in a restaurant as well. Hundred percent. I mean, the bottom line is, is that we're all adults, and, and that's you know, it's our decision that we want to get up and have a, a couple of drinks on a like one of the games is on a Sunday, you know, at, at eight a.m. I mean, people get up at ten o'clock and they watch football and they're drinking and partying and tailgating and so on. I mean, I don't see what the difference is between eight and ten. I mean. Then again, I'm not the person that's drinking at 8 a.m., but at the end of the day, again, it's once in a lifetime. I mean, we haven't played since, like I said, the 86, and I think that especially considering that it's Team Canada and, you know, especially with everything that happened, you know, sort of COVID, post-COVID, like I think we actually can unite as a nation and all take part in this exciting exciting opportunity, regardless of how well we end up doing. I think it's just for us to be there is, is a World Cup win in itself. Uh, exactly. And I think a lot of people, like you said, are really excited about this. But to pick up on what you said there as well, it is expensive like you, for staff costs and bringing staff in to extend those hours. Do you think, will it be difficult for places like the Tap House or others to make, if you're going to do that and, and take advantage of the, the extended hours, I would think you want to be able to make as much profit as you can. Well, a hundred percent, and I mean, uh, we all know about inflation. We know all about the supply and demand, uh, you know, issues. We all are getting hit. Forget even gas, but we're all getting hit at the grocery store. I mean, we know that prices are are skyrocketing, and there's only so much money, you know, people are willing to spend. And I just, I find that. Um, you know, to open up for a breakfast. And I mean, we, we, we serve an amazing, you know, classic plate, you know, the two eggs, bacon, you know, that kind of stuff. And it's $10. I mean, I, I, I'm not making a lot of profit on that $10 because when you factor in again, you know, rent and the cost of, you know, the people that I have to have in the back of the house and the front of the house and so on and so forth. Uh, I mean, how many classic plates am I going to have to sell in order for me to justify opening up three hours earlier than we normally do? You know, and, and I think that that's going to be a challenge for everybody is to try to determine whether there's 
uh, functionality uh, of actually doing this. Um, I uh, I remembered uh, about uh, maybe maybe you know let's just say eight years ago uh, there was a time where some of the games were up at six a.m. and uh, the place that I was working at we were we actually did open up to that but we didn't see any extra boost in sales it was almost like that was too early but albeit canada wasn't in there but still there's a lot of support from teams like england and italy and so on but so i don't know whether uh everywhere is going to succeed even opening up at seven or eight o'clock let alone again all the things that i had mentioned right and so the rules as they are now is it's 11 a.m isn't it that you can start serving alcohol uh, there, it depends on your li- liquor license. Uh, like our, our location in, in Coquitlam has a, li- a license to serve liquor at 9 a.m., but my Guilford location, for instance, has at 11 a.m. So um, they, it really depends on your license. Okay. I mean, that in itself is confusing, I would imagine, as well. That, that Why would you have different times, and I get it, different licenses? But but if they're asking for the extension for these extended hours, if you have a 9 a.m. license, and there, I mean, there's going to be scenarios where you really just want it extended for an hour, maybe two, right? Uh, oh, 100%. And it's kind of interesting because, uh, you know, way back when there was um, – a rule of thumb where on if it was a Friday or Saturday, uh, every uh, liquor license or restaurant license, again, don't quote me on this, but I just remember years back, they actually on New Year's, you were allowed to extend your license up to one hour longer, you know, just so that places can be open until 3 a.m., not 2 a.m., and, uh, I mean, they had uh, that allowance. I mean, like I said, I mean, we, have, we haven't been in the World Cup since 86, and obviously, you know, people are excited. They're passionate about this team. We're passionate about uh, the fact that we're we're doing so well. Uh, I mean, kudos, obviously, to the the women's uh, World Cup team. But yes, the the men's obviously, it's uh, it's really exciting to see that they actually have broken through. And um, I, I I feel like they should have maybe made a little bit more of a wiggle room, especially with the liquor uh, liquor stuff, because. It's just it is so costly to run a business. You know, I mean, we're already making five cents on the dollar. The little extra liquor sales, whether it's, like I said, a Bailey's or a Caesar, certainly would help. It would entice. I think it would also, you know, uh, relax the people so that they get a little bit more into it. Uh, It's going to be tough. You know, I I feel bad for for a lot of places, and I think a lot of places are going to really have to think hard as to whether they're going to want to open up. And and whether they open up at 8 a.m. or they decide that anything earlier than 8 a.m., they can't do it. You know, it's just one of those ones where it's like, how do you stay consistent, too? You know, like I said, I was sending a message out to my team, and I said, I think the 11 a.m. would work. I think that we could do the 8 a.m. because it's on a Sunday. We're open up at 10 a.m. anyway. What's the difference for two hours? But it's that Thursday on the Thursday at 7 a.m., and I'm like, that's four and a half hours normally that we're not open. I mean, again, how do we, how do we turn that into a profit, you know? So it might be a lost leader. I, I don't know. Right. So at this point, do you think you will open on, on all three days? I'm I'm figuring that my team is probably going to say yes. Uh, I mean, I feel I've already said that if we're going to go in, we got to go in all. Um, Again, like, you know, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. I mean, hopefully maybe four years from now, I could say that this is a twice in a lifetime opportunity. (laughs) But um, I I feel like we should. I feel like if especially if we make enough promotions and advertising out there that we probably will. Uh, And I, I actually truly believe that we'll probably make it to the round of 16. Outside of that, I don't know. So we're talking about four games that we have to open up early, and I'm, I'm comfortable with that. So just stay tuned. Check our, make sure you check our social medias and stuff like that. We'll definitely make an announcement shortly, but 
Oh, oh, for sure. And and Owen, just one other thing, and not not that everything it revolves around alcohol and that you have to have alcohol to make it that people will want to come. And aside from the profits and and your business model, but do yep. you think too is this going to compete with or or just would make the difference? I might think when you made the reference to people at home watching football, if a group of people are going to go out, I would think if the choice is well, if we're going out to the tap house to watch this game and it's going to be a great atmosphere with people. Um, the, but the difference might be if you can have that Bailey's and coffee, and then if you can't, maybe people are just going to stay home and have parties at their homes instead. Oh, for sure. And, and uh, you know, I, to be perfectly fair, you know, just from, again, the high cost to go out, um, you know, just everybody's in a tight squeeze. Uh, I even noticed this past Halloween that there was a lot more house parties. And again, maybe it's because of that. Maybe it's just because we're used to going to people's houses because of, again, a couple of years of, of so much social distancing. But I feel like this is one of those cases uh, where I think that you don't want a lot of people at your house to do this because then you have to deal with all the cleanup and so on and so forth. I think people are going to all gather together and unite wearing red, wearing white, and coming in and, and wanting to be a part of something bigger than just maybe sort of their, their, their small circle of friends. I, I really, truly feel like if, uh, if people are going to want to go out, they're going to want to go out hard. And I think that they're, and, and that's not to do with alcohol. I'm talking about just the, the excitement and the, the euphoria of being around and surrounded by numbers of people that are all from different backgrounds and cultures and so on, but we're all in it to unite you know, Team Canada, like what, who we're supporting for this thing. So I think that that's, that's really where I feel like we have the, uh, sort of the difference maker rather than just going to somebody's house. And, and like you said, I mean, it's not that there's a ton of people drinking at that time. I think it's just the, the courtesy of the option. Like I said, we're all adults and, you know, I don't think you need to have a, you know, have an ounce in order to have fun, but I think it's just, uh, the fact that there is that rule kind of in place where you can't, I, I just don't know whether it'll help businesses make that decision to open up. Just because, again, with sheer cost of things, it's really hard to make a dollar without that extra uh, extra moneymaker, really. All right. Well, we will stay tuned, like you said, and we'll be waiting for the update on that. Owen Coomer, thank you so much once again for coming on the show. Yeah, no worries. My pleasure. Thanks again. All right. Go, go Canada. <laughs> exactly. Well, we know there is a tentative agreement between the BC Teachers Federation and the province. The head of the BCTF spoke on Mornings with Simi earlier today. But we're also learning more about some concerns that have been put forward from the Surrey Teachers Association. And these have to do with making sure schools are safe places and for covering absences when specialist teachers are away. Earlier today, the education minister was asked specifically about of course, the safety of uh, everyone in our school environment, uh, both staff and students, is, uh, is our, our primary concern. Uh, I have not seen the letter yet, so I don't, uh, I'm not aware of the content or the particular uh, circumstances that are, that are being raised. And, of course, we're in a process right now where we have a tentative uh, agreement between the parties that is in the process of, of being ratified. But certainly, conversations around, uh, around school safety are, are ongoing. That um, was BC's Education Minister speaking earlier today. Joining us now is Jatinder Beer, President of the Surrey Teachers Association. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, thank you for having me. What are the main concerns that have been outlined in this letter? Yeah, so uh, our teachers have been calling the union office in distress. 
around. Um, so when teachers are absent, specialist teachers, they're not being replaced right away. And part of that is that there is a, the Surrey District puts out a B memo and the B memo identifies after what period of time those specialist positions will be filled. And it has implications to the entire school system. So right now what's happening is that when our um, augmentative communication specialists, district resource counselors, district behavior specialists, you know, literacy, numeracy teachers, integration support, when those positions are not filled due to any um, reason, let's even say a sickness, if the position is not filled, then it creates a hole in the system and it has ripple effects. So what that means for our students is our students' loss of services. And that what that means for, um, let's say, teachers in a classroom is that if we don't have the supports of an integration support teacher who is um, maybe supporting a child with behavioral, social-emotional needs, then what happens is all that falls upon the classroom teacher. In Surrey, our classrooms are already packed. Our schools are full capacity. My understanding is that as enrollment, we are over 2,200 students. We know a lot of these students are, are immigrants that are coming into this country. Um, and so th this is a problem in our school system. The ripple effect is that it's affecting our, our students' loss of service, but as well as our teachers. Our teachers are exhausted. They are, they're looking for ways out. They're looking for ways uh, to get a leave. They're asking for early retirement. This is a problem. And specifically then, it sounds like the kind of ripple effect of when a specialist teacher is absent. And I'm guessing so there aren't replacements when a, when a specialist teacher is away for whatever reason. There's not somebody that can come in like a substitute uh, specialist teacher. So we have teachers on call. They may not be qualified to be a specialist, but even replace them with a teacher on call. We are asking that those positions be filled be filled with a teacher instead of waiting for those gaps of period. Um, and part of that is also recruitment, right? In order to get folks to apply for these jobs, we have to have specialists in, in positions. Um, and so we have recruitment issues. And I think the new tentative agreement will sort of address, hopefully bring in some new folks wanting to join the education field. But we also have retention issues. And this piece here is a massive retention issue. Um, because it, the, workload, the workload gets harder and harder in our schools. Um, right now, we've had teachers, I had a kindergarten teacher who spoke to us uh, and said, you know, I have this one child that's like right beside me. And, but she's also taking care of the rest of the kids in that class. If something should happen in, you know, one of the other kids that she needs to tend to, the child that, that she's supposed to be watching because she doesn't have the supports is now starting to uh, dysregulate. And sometimes what that dysregulation leads to is room clears, it's um, violence against teachers and education assistants. Just in September, we had 58 uh, incidents of violence against teachers, and that was uh, filed through WorkSafe. And that could range from anything from kicks, uh, scratches, bites, throwing furniture. Uh, it's a variation of things, but there is clear violence. Also, Jill, what I wanted to mention is also is that this is not just our kids with special needs. These, it affects the kids that are in that classroom as well. So we have um, kids who are also, um, you know, the, 
that violence is also leading to or uh, has a hand in vicarious trauma for other kids. And so we have kids that come from war-torn countries who um, our teachers are telling us they're hiding in corners, uh, curled up because they're afraid uh, if there's a room clear. And so we want our rooms to be safe. We want our schools to be safe. We want our specialists to be replaced on day one. And just to go back to something you said there, as far as when when a specialist teacher is absent, that can cause students to become dysregulated. What exactly does that mean? So when I'm referring to dysregulation, we we have um, kids in our school system who require uh, behavioral supports. And so when you have a child who, um, let's say, through communication, they're getting frustrated, they're unable to communicate. And so the way that they would communicate is through sort of um, outbursts because there's only so much they can take. If they don't have the supports that they need to be able to self-regulate, um, that can also cause uh, a disruption in in the classroom, in the learning. Right. Okay. That that makes more sense. And when you, and that number seems very high, fifty eight incidents uh, that have been reported just for the month of September. Is that a high mm-hmm. number uh, compared to, to to say last September or or other months? So we've actually not compared that data. Um, we actually. It, we got that data because we put a call out to our, our, our teachers to say, hey, how is it going in your classrooms? How is it going in schools? Because we wanted to sort of get a pulse on what is happening in schools. And this was the information that was shared to our office that um, the data shows that there was 58 uh, incidents filed for just classroom teachers. And apparently the data is way higher for educational assistants. All right. So what would you and so you said that what needs to change then is for these positions to be filled faster for 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 retainment, for recruitment. Uh, And you mentioned the collective agreement as well. And we don't have all of the details on that. But do you think it will be addressed in that? No, it's not being addressed in that at all. Uh, Our working conditions were not mentioned in the uh, terms of settlement, uh, and that is a huge disappointment. Uh, So workload uh, is my understanding that workload is, uh, the employer is not interested in in looking at that in our collective agreement. And if they want us to, uh, you know, if they're willing to look at it, that that we should start at ground zero, start from scratch. I find that uh, comment to be incredibly uh, disrespectful. Teachers have fought for uh, collective bargaining for years and years and years. And so if the employer now is telling us that, hey, uh, or the government or BCPC is telling us that we're not going to negotiate unless we start from zero, well, we fought in courts to get class size and composition back. And we're still that is still not restored today because we have, you know, non-compliance. Our classrooms are still full. We're still not able to service these kids. And that court win was supposed to give us that. So it's not good enough to not, uh, you know, uh, and make sure that our working conditions are looked at, are protected, because in fact, our working conditions are kids' learning conditions, and teachers have been fighting for that for years and years and years. And is this, do you think, specific to Surrey, or are there other, other school districts as well that are dealing with this? Well, I think the workload issue is provincial. Um, I can only speak for Surrey and what we are hearing in the office, and our teachers are upset around the workload uh, and being, you know, and then 
you know, like I said, there's lots of great things in the new tentative agreement, absolutely, but not looking at uh, workload is not good enough. Even though I know the the BCTF has put this out saying that after many months of negotiations, they've reached this deal. Uh, They say that there are significant salary gains that this is going to get to BC teachers up into the much higher tiers as far as uh, provinces where where teachers pay is better. Uh, I mean, they seem to be putting it out there that it is a very good deal. But but do you think it kind of misses the mark then in some other areas? I mean, definitely, it is making gains in salary. Absolutely. Um, but we also know that across the, uh, across nationally, other unions are also collective, um, they're, they're bargaining right now, too. So as far as where we will end up, uh, right now, BC teachers are second to lowest. So once the rest of the teachers across Canada have done their collective bargaining, then that will actually show where BC's ranking are as far as salary. But as far as working conditions, working conditions is, I think, um, that is the piece that we, that was a priority as well for teachers, uh, but that has not been given um, the proper due diligence in, you know, bargaining with the employer. I think that they missed the mark on that one. And it's unfortunate because my understanding is that our team tried, um, but of course, you, you have to come to the table together. And if you come to the table together, it has to be in good faith bargaining. But when you have the other side saying, well, if we're going to open up on your working conditions, then that means we need to start at scratch. Well, you know, <laughs> I just find that statement mind-blowing. And so do you think teachers in Surrey will vote in favor of this deal? I think that in Surrey, what we want to ensure is that our membership fully understands what is ahead of them in this uh, settlement, and then we want the teachers to decide what's good for them, and that's the way that we are going to move forward. All right. Uh, Jatinder, we'll leave it there uh, for now, but I'm sure we will talk to you about this again. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much.